In just a moment, we will have the privilege of hearing from God's Word brought to us by Sparky Pritchard. And uh, if you've not heard him yet, um, you're in for a treat. It is always a delight to have him with us and expound the Word after having uh, served the church for years and years and years as a pastor. And so um, we are deeply indebted to his willingness to come and, and uh, bring the word for, to us. And uh, if you'll stand together, we're going to read the scripture from Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. Philippians chapter 1, 18 through 26. What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we pray that now as we turn our hearts towards your word, that you would speak to us from it. We pray that Sparky would be able to communicate faithfully and clearly that which you want us to hear, that our eyes would be open to you, that our ears would be receptive, and that our hearts would be molded so that we might leave transformed by the renewing of our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For years and years and years and years, I don't think I've ever been introduced quite that way. I must be getting older. And, uh, and it has been years and years and years and years. Um, over 40 years in ministry. And uh, we just praise God for his faithfulness, not ours, but his faithfulness, his strength, and his goodness and grace to us. And it's a privilege to be back here again and to preach uh, and to hear God's word together. And I trust that you will be blessed by the words that you do here. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's an honor to be back here again. I, I did notice there's some changes this time after I've been here two times. This is the third time the sound crew moved to the back because they've heard enough. And uh, so anyway, but I appreciate them. You know, it takes a lot of people to put together services, and I just appreciate the labors that uh, they do for the Lord and for each of you and what you do and all the people who prepare things in the back there. 
be sure, by the way, that your, your cell phones are silenced and that your hearing aids are silenced in case you want to not hear what I'm going to say. Um, but we've got a, a passage today that I will tell you that as I've labored through this passage, uh, it is one that though I know well, I don't know it well. I don't live it as I should. Uh, a preacher always preaches beyond himself, always. Because we're never, we haven't arrived. But I hope today that this will be a challenge to all of us. And so let's bow our heads for again for just a moment and say, Lord, we come to you as people in need, just like the Philippians were in need. And yet they were your people, and you had a word for them from the Apostle Paul to challenge them to live to the glory of God. We started this service by saying the words, I will magnify the Lord. And Father, today, may you be magnified through this message. So help me to say the things I ought to say and not say anything that I shouldn't. Help me to be a blessing and encouragement to your people to live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For the Atlanta Braves, to live is the World Series. For an NCAA football team, to live is to be ranked number one. For college basketball teams, to live is to make the final four and win a national championship. For politicians, as I saw driving out here, all the multitude of signs, to live is winning an election. For the film world, to live is the Oscars. For musicians, it's the Grammy. For Elon Musk, to live is to dream big. For Jeff Bezos, to live is Amazon. For many of us, to live is to shop on Amazon. Well, so let's make this up close and personal. I want you for a moment to fill in the blank in your own mind. You don't have to say this out loud. In fact, I encourage you not to say it out loud. Or better yet, how would those around you, your children, your parents, your spouse, how would they fill in this blank? For to me, to live is... What is life to you? Let me suggest some. For some people, for them to live is my job or my house or my car or my garden or my children or my investments or my music, my sports team. Or maybe we would be really honest, for me to live is myself, to live for me, to live for my own little kingdom. See, whether we admit it or not, and whether we are conscious of it or not, everyone in this room, everyone that you know, everyone in the world is living for something. We all live for something. 
And that something will alter the way that we think, the way we act, the way we approach all of life, and even death. Now, Paul summarized his philosophy of life and what defined the meaning of life in one simple statement in Philippians 1.21. Turn to Philippians. You need to have an open Bible. You need to check me out what I'm saying. And you need to see it for yourself, not just hear it. Well, Philippians 1.21, for to me, Paul says, to live is Christ. Those words are in a context of a passage that we're exploring this morning. These words and this statement has haunted me over the past couple of weeks as I've prepared. And I hope that they will do more than haunt you. I hope that they will challenge you to deepen your own commitment to Jesus Christ. Our scripture reading this morning began with the final words of verse 18. Do you see how actually in the paragraphs here, that last line of 18 really belongs to verse 19 in that sense? Well, those final words were uh, verse 18, but the first words of our reading, yes, and I will rejoice. And I say, oh, wait, yes, I rejoice. What, what is Paul talking about? Yes, what? So let's quickly just review the context of these words and what follows so we can discover what brought true and constant joy to the life of the Apostle Paul. The heart of Paul is laid bare in the words that flow onto the page as he writes his beloved friends there at Philippi who are in Christ. We saw his present circumstances were difficult, stretching, troubling as he was awaiting his pending trial before Caesar. Now, the man is chained between hardened pagan soldiers of, his imperial, of the imperial guard. He's no longer free to move about, to spread the gospel, to plant churches, to encourage saints. And what's more, there are rivals all around gloating over this moment of Paul being in chains, ambitious men who were selfish and selfishly promoting themselves, even though they were actually uh, preaching the truth of the gospel. They were living by the motto for, to me, to live is, is me. It's about me. And that's the way it is sometimes with preachers. And yet, none of this bothers Paul. And that's because he sees a bigger picture, verse 18. And he rejoices that Christ is proclaimed. I've got all this going on, and I've got all these rivals, but the bottom line is Christ is proclaimed, and therefore, yes, I will rejoice. And though Paul is presently in chains, the gospel is unchained. His passion is for the progress of the gospel. You see that back in verse 12. You heard about that last Sunday, I'm sure, which continues to advance in spite of all the trials that surround the Apostle Paul. See, Paul knows that life isn't really about him. It's not about his successes. It's not about how many missionary trips he has made. It's not about his reputation. By his own actions and attitudes, he's living out the very challenge that he issues to the Philippian believers 
in chapter 2, look over there, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, when he says, complete my joy. I'm rejoicing, but complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, listen now, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. <gasps> you mean I'm not the most significant people in the world? The universe doesn't surround me? You know, those verses right there are a great challenge to any church to live chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. But it all begins back here. Paul would go on to say in chapter 2, as you'll hear in a few weeks, that he is challenging them to have the mind of Christ, chapter 2, verse 5, who humbled himself, who gave himself to secure their redemption, verse 8. So, in his present troubles, the apostle looks at all of that and he says, I'm rejoicing. There's no worry. There's no bitterness. There's no fear here. He's rejoicing in his present circumstances. But now wait, what about his future? On the surface, it looks bleak. And yet Paul again chooses to rejoice. And that's why he says, yes, and I will rejoice. I'm going to keep on rejoicing. Even though he's looking in the face of an uncertain future, Will he be set free or will he be sentenced to die? How does he feel about all these uncertainties that he's facing? Well, he tells us, yes, I will rejoice. And why is he so confident in the face of present trials and so calm in the face of future uncertainties? And this brings us to the meat of our text today. As Paul explains his worldview, his gospel passion, and his gospel confidence. So our first point here today, as we look at verses 18 through 20, is this, Paul's quiet confidence. Though Paul was attacked by his critics, though he faced unjust charges by his enemies, though his trial had stretched his emotions, though his future was uncertain from a human standpoint, Paul possessed a quiet confidence as evidence from several factors that we're going to see here in verses 18, 20. He says, and look at verse 18 and verse 19. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. Those first words that I've said several times now, yes, and I will rejoice, literally in the original language, he says this, but... It's a really strong adversative there. But also, I will rejoice, for I know. What does he know? Why such confidence? Well, look at the end of the verse. Here's why he's confident. Here's something that he knows. This will turn out for my deliverance. Now, when you read that line or hear that line, what do you immediately think Paul is thinking about? Is he thinking of his deliverance from his bonds, from those chains, from the soldiers around him, from facing Nero? Is that what he's 
thinking about there? Hardly. Because when you read on in the passage here, as we will do in the next verses, they imply that he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He's ready to live or to die, but he doesn't know what's going to happen. But in verse 19, that word deliverance is the word that Paul uses throughout his letters to refer to salvation, that is, spiritual salvation. <clears throat> but it's been translated here as deliverance, which kind of takes our mind in a different path. Elsewhere, when Paul, though, speaks about an actual physical deliverance from a problem or an enemy or whatever, he uses a different word entirely. You could jot in the margin of your Bible there, 2 Corinthians 1.10. There's an example of it. But I'm going to take you to another passage. If you keep your finger here and turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18, the two different words are used in this passage, and you can see the difference in them. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. Listen, the Lord will rescue or deliver. There's one word. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. Okay, that's one thing. Then he says, and bring me safely. He will deliver me. He will save me into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So back to our text. Paul looks beyond all the things that he's enduring in that moment. He understands that all things are working together for good because he does love God. He is called according to his purpose. And so, in other words, the pro in the providence of God, that will bring Paul safely home to heaven. Paul is saying, in essence, this, if I can paraphrase him. Regardless of what happens next, I am assured of my hope of salvation, and that's where my rejoicing is. Not in my present circumstances but in my standing before God. It doesn't matter what, I ha what happens when I stand before Caesar. What matters is when I stand before God. And interestingly here, in this statement, Paul is actually quoting the book of Job. Look at the end of verse 19, this statement. This will turn out for my deliverance, Paul writes. He's actually using the exact words that appear in the Old Testament translation of, of, the, uh, of the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek. He's quoting from Job 13. You can read that later when you go home, but I'm going to quote two of the verses for you. Job 13, verses 15 and 16. As Job was faced with so many trials and troubles. At this point, he says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation. What he is saying is this, all that he experiences now will not hinder his vindication before God. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. Everything that I'm going through now, God will one day set all things right. Jason Meyer writes this in explaining it. I think he puts it well. Paul's joy is bound up with the salvation of his soul, not the outcome of his trial. He's not rejoicing in the possibility of getting out of jail. He is rejoicing about the certainty of his salvation in Christ.
In other words, the assurance that Paul gave to God's people in Philippians 1.6. Let your eye run back up the page, verse 6 of Philippians 1. When he told them, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And that very promise is a promise he's holding on to as well in his hardest moments. Or as Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he knew that that meant and included the chains, the trials, even the possible execution he was facing. Nothing could separate him from the love of God. That was his sure hope. That's why he can rejoice. Everything that is happening in his life in that moment is preparing him for God's glory, both here and now, and when he, on that day when he stands before God. David Strain writes this, part of what fuel Paul's joyful confidence then is a firm grasp of the saving sovereignty and grace of God. His eyes are fixed on eternity, and his chains cannot hinder the ultimate purpose of the Lord for his salvation, but rather they will become just one of the instruments in the Redeemer's hands for his sanctification gradually fitting him for heaven. God is fitting us all for heaven. And sometimes we're not a good fit at this point. And God uses everything, all things working together for our good and for his glory and to prepare us for heaven that we might be like Christ. You see, Paul's eyes were fixed on his heavenly hope, not his earthly trials. Let me ask you, as I've asked myself this week, where are your eyes fixed when trials come and the future looks uncertain, just like Paul? And I'm not saying that in a vacuum. Just look around at the world that we're living in. Look at the culture as it spirals downward morally. This world is not a friend of grace. We're living in days in which I don't know that I'm going to see it fully, but I may. I'm 71, but if I last another 10 years, I can't even imagine. You say, well, you're, yeah, that's a doomsday prophet. I, I'm just going by what Paul himself said. Things are going to go from bad to better. No, from bad to worse. So, the question I want to ask then is, okay, then how, how does Paul see God as bringing him through this trial for his good and God's glory? What will God use in the process to make this happen? Now, at this point, there are two foundational truths that he shares with us in verse 19. And I want you to look at this carefully. Verse 19 says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn from my deliverance, that I will be carried home gloriously. First thing, the prayers of God's people. Now, now look here. Paul constantly begged for prayer support in his ministry. You probably know that. You read his letters. You see it all the time. Let me just give you three examples. And listen carefully to his prayers. 
what he prays for. Look for words like deliverance and God helping him. First, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith. Paul in his day, like us, looks around and say, man, where is faith? Not a pe- lot of people who take in what I'm saying. But he says, pray for us that God will use all of this even in the face of opposition. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who, now listen, delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Past, present, future. God is working in every trial, every struggle of his life, even when the sentence of death was there. But I didn't finish the verses. Listen to the last line. In whom we trust that he will still deliver us, you also helping together in prayer for us. Paul is saying, I'm not going to make it without your prayers. I need your prayers. What? Saint Paul, that holy man, needs our prayers? One more verse. Romans chapter 15, verses 30 to 32. Now I beg you, brethren, I'm pleading with you through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy. My joy comes from God's grace that flows from your prayers to the throne of God. Back to Philippians now. You see, this is what Paul had meant earlier in verse 5 when he thanked them for their partnership in the gospel. The partnership was a prayer partnership, a giving partnership, a going partnership, but it was a prayer partnership too. Paul is therefore eager for their prayers to strengthen and encourage him through these very hard days of his ministry and suffering. As it says there in verse 19 again, for I know that through your prayers, this will happen. Moses Silva says this, the point to note here is that even Paul's personal growth His sanctification does not take place in isolation from the support of the church. I want you to wrap your head and heart around that for a moment. Because I'm going to stop preaching. I'm going to go to meddling a little bit. Our prayers are the source of encouragement to others in their walk of faith, in their assurance, in their sanctification, in their journey home to be with the Lord. 
you come here to gather together. You sit in your individual seats and your individual sections, and you're probably in the same section you're always in because I've been here three times now, and I've seen the same people in the same seats. But you are to be together with one another, and you need to pray for one another. Praying for every member. Praying for every officer in this church, your elders, your deacons. Pray for the pulpit committee. I take that that has been formed now, and you have that together. You need to pray for them. And not just, or I pray for the pulpit committee. Pray for the individuals on that committee. Pray for them to have wisdom, guidance, discernment. Pray for the man that you don't even know yet who will become your pastor. You pray for the right man to be here. You pray that God will prepare his heart, his mind, his soul. Help him to be a man who says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Paul's confidence comes from the prayers of his people. there's a second source. It's a higher source. Verse 19 again, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that this will turn out for my deliverance. Here, Paul tells them that in conjunction with the prayers of God's people, that the Spirit of Jesus Christ, and, 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 and by that, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what he's referring to is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who came upon Christ, the Messiah, and endowed him with all that was necessary for his messianic ministry of living and dying and being raised again, as Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 11 and in chapter 61 as well, and fulfilled in Matthew 3, 15 and 16, and John 3, 34, and Hebrews 9, 14. The Spirit of God was upon Jesus to give him everything and equip him and enable him in everything that he needed. And that same Spirit of God is the Spirit that comes to us through your prayers. Regarding this help, this supply of the Spirit. Here's what one commentary says. The ideas in the word help, supply, are those of support and endowment. The Spirit would come alongside him in his entangled, threatening circumstances of life and provide strength for every eventuality. Is he not the comforter? He writes. Jesus promised to send another comforter. The word comfort there in our English language means with strength. He comes with strength into our lives. But but the original word means he comes right alongside you to be there with you and for you and to encourage you through those times. So here's, here's how it works. As God's people pray, the Spirit of God and of Christ hears and responds and supplies the grace, wisdom, strength, and guidance that will build up and nourish God's people, the body of Christ. And this is why we pray. This is why we need to pray. Because prayer isn't just important. It is irreplaceable. 
It is essential. How important is prayer in your life and in your church life? I had a uh, a great, I had many great profs, but I had a great prof in grad school. An uh, older man who became a mentor and friend through my ministry. He would often say to me, Sparky, Sunday morning attendance reveals the popularity of the preacher. Sunday night attendance reveals the popularity of the church. But the prayer meeting reveals the popularity of the Lord. It's easy to come to a service, smile, shake hands, have a little fellowship, listen to a sermon, walk away. It's harder to take the church with you in your prayers, to lay your heart before God for the people of God in this place. You see, my, my friend Jesse Boyd, who told me those words, his point was that the bottom line for having a strong church is found in its prayer life, not its programs. In over 40 years of ministry, I have seen programs come and go. It's nickel and dime stuff. But if you want the power of God, church, it will take prayer. It will take you praying. The Westminster Shorter Catechism teaches us and reminds us of the means of grace in question 88. What are the means of grace? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances especially word, sacraments, one more thing, prayer, prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect of salvation. The preaching of the word is effectual. The sacraments are effectual. Prayer, too, is effectual. We need to pray more. We need to pray more earnestly. We need to pray more faithfully for each other, our leaders, our elders. And by the way, here's the meddling. Did you pray the prayer I challenged you to pray three weeks ago? The prayer of Paul in those earlier verses. Did you pray that? No hands raised. Second point here. Paul's deep conviction is seen in verses 20 and 21. You see, the result of those prayers and what the Spirit supplies is now seen here in verse 20, where it tells us that Christ will be honored boldly, courageously. Here's the verse. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's words seem to echo something from Psalm 34, verses 5 through 7. Listen to this. Listen for the words magnify and deliver and ashamed, words he's using here. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. 
I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears, not from the circumstances, by the way, but from his fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Paul, like David, will not be ashamed, but instead he will honor, that is, he will magnify the Lord, whether in life or in death. And note that word honored in verse 20 in the ESV, sometimes rendered magnified, which is really a good word, because literally here, the word behind this in the original language is mega luna. Make large Christ in every way, in everything, in every circumstance. Paul wants Christ to be seen and see, be seen as huge. I love what I read here in one commentary. It explains this well. When we magnify Christ, we make the greatness of Christ appear as it really is. Now, you see, you can, you can take a magnifying glass and you, and you make something look, look big, even when it's not. Stick it up to your eyeball and do that with your grandkids, and they laugh at you because your eyes are so big and bulgy. But he says, we met, when we magnify Christ, we make the greatness of Christ appear as it really is. To magnify Christ is to restore his true greatness to our view so that all else appears in its correct proportion to him. How big is Christ to you? Uh, my wife and I have traveled quite a bit. We've been privileged to go and speak all over the world. But we really enjoy Italy. And I can tell you a number of reasons. One reason is, is my deep conviction that for me to live is to eat gelati. So anyway, when we were in Pisa, I said, okay, I'm going to take a picture, Kathy. I want you to stand right over here in this spot. I had her set in this spot. And we were a long way away from the tower of Pisa. I said, now, okay, sweetheart, I'm going to tell you exactly how to put your hands up. I said, put your right hand up like this, and she did. I said, now move it, move it up a little bit, a little, little bit, that right there. Now take your other hand and put it, now that's a little, little bit more up. Turn it, turn it, perfect. Click. You see how long ago it was we went over there, a click. So there was a click. And, and so uh, we got the, the, the picture back. And here's my wife, huge, holding up the Tower of Pisa. Wow, look at that. Babe, you're great. Now, the fact is, when we walked over to the Tower of Pisa, she was small. It's about perspective, isn't it? We make small things big. And we make big things small in life. And in Christianity, that's the tragedy. Again, you started out the service. I will magnify the Lord. Are we here to make ourselves look big, look great? What did John the baptizer say? Notice I didn't say Baptist. John the baptizer, he said this. He must increase. Okay, get over it. <laughs> I'm a former Baptist, but I get that right. He wasn't a Baptist, okay? He was a baptizer, but he wasn't a Baptist. He said, 
He must increase. I must decrease. That doesn't mean putting yourself down. That means when you put Christ in the proper position, you will be in the right position. This is why we worship to make Christ large in our eyes. This is why we witness to others to make much of Jesus, to put life in perspective for other people who don't have a perspective. And this is why people all around us today live in fear. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one. Church, what's your chief end in life? You're PCA people. You should know that. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Maybe you're afraid to talk back to me. That question one, Paul never saw that question, but he knew the answer. In fact, Paul embodied that principle that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Ask yourself a question that I asked myself this week. I'm not just preaching. I ask myself very strongly, what is bigger in my vision of life? My problems, myself, or my Savior? What is the biggest thing in my vision? Do you only see the problems, the circumstances, the difficulties? How you answer that will explain either why you have joy or why you don't have joy by what is big in your vision. Verse 20 says, but with full courage now, as always. This is, this is, this is Paul's life, right? Now and always, Christ will be honored, magnified, whether by life or death. And though he is bound between two soldiers, Paul is bound up more with Christ, which gives him boldness and peace in either life or death. And therefore, we see verse 21. And my time, I need to get moving here, excuse me. I got to preaching too much in there. Verse 21, if Paul were taking a class from leadership guru Stephen Covey, this sentence would be considered his mission statement, but it's so much more than a mission statement. One author said this, this is the highest statement of Christian experience in the whole New Testament, and every Christian is to aspire to it. This isn't just for saints, like St. Paul. This is for all saints. You're saints before God. That's what Philippians 1, 1 and 2 was telling us. But here it is, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. What should come to grips with what Paul is really saying here? What made this man tick? Carefully examine the wording. First, there are no main verbs in the original language here. It's simply put, for me to live Christ. That's literal. To die, gain. Uh, he, it's, it's like a concise formula for life. It's like a mathematical formula for me, live Christ, die, gain. That's it. Simple as that. But second, notice this about this statement. 
The words live and die are infinitives with something to teach us. To live is is what is called a present infinitive, meaning it is describing an ongoing continuing experience. Really, more literally, it'd probably be living, not to live, but living is Christ. Daily grind needs daily grace, and so he's living for Christ. And to die, that's an aorist. I know that's a word you probably don't even recognize, but that describes an event, a specific event that happens at a singular point in time. So death, gain. Paul's life is consumed in living for Christ and exalting him. We could put it this way. Living day in and day out is always for and in Christ. And the moment I die will only be gain. Listen to Paul's preaching in Acts 17, 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. We have everything from him. Or read from his letter of Romans, chapter 11, verse 36, when his own heart burst in praise of God. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. And hear his correction and encouragement of the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That it is, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Glory in Christ. Let him be your boasting. Make him large. Truly, for Paul, Christ was the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. Christ is our reward. And that helps to explain why to die is gain. Because when we die, we gain more of Christ, all of Christ. So I like to read Philippians 1.21 with another thing that Paul wrote in view, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I've already died. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why he gave himself back to God. Final point. Aren't you glad to hear that? I want you to look at verses 22 to 26. I'll try to go through this very quickly. Paul's firm commitment. Paul's firm commitment. Here's what he says. So, if for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And I don't know if I'm going to live or die. Verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, if God allows it, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between two. My desire, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So, Paul sees two possibilities of what could happen in the coming days in his life. If I am to live in the flesh, that is, if he's released, then what does he anticipate? He says, that's going to mean 
more fruitful labor, not retirement, not taking it easy, not resting on what I've already done. Or if I ever get out of this mess, God, I promise I'll, I'll never get in a mess like this again. No, not at all. If he lives on, he lives on for Christ. Paul will use all of his energy here to see more fruit to the glory of God. He says, what time I have, I want to use it for advancing the gospel and for advancing another goal. You see, in this passage, there are two chief concerns, a twofold thing that he's looking for in the larger context. You go back to verse 12. Paul is for the progress, the advancement of the gospel. And now in verse 25, he is for the progress of God's people, the advancement of God's people. Now look at verses 24, 26 here, what it says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming again to you. Though his immediate concern was uncertain, yet in his heart, he thought, all right, I am going to have an opportunity perhaps to be with you again because you have needs. And I'm here not to meet my needs, but your needs. So Paul had a choice. Which would he choose? Would he live or die? He says, my desire is to depart, be with Christ, which is far better. That word depart is a word which means to, to, to loosen the tent ropes, to pull up the stakes, to move on, to go to glory, or to, to loosen the, the mooring ropes and pull up anchor and set sail. Paul was familiar with both of those. He chooses a very good word here. And so to depart, to be with Christ, would be far better, he says. And Paul, and, and there's two words in English, but there's actually three words in Greek. He piles on comparative words so that what, what we could literally say is that it would be much more better. Now, Paul wouldn't get an A in grammar, but he gets a superior plus in knowing that being with Christ excels anything that we can ever imagine here on this earth. But Paul seems to have a sense that his life will go on for a time, but to remain, verse 424, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I know my time is up here, but let me share with you. In 2019, we came within a hair's breadth of losing my wife. She got a pneumonia in her lungs that filled her lungs. And on top of it came 2019 now. So don't get too excited. 2019, there was a virus that set on there. And doctors from the CDC checked her and were working with her. See, what is this virus? We don't recognize it. Okay, they didn't label it Corona, okay? Just want you to know that. But she went for one month in the hospital, was in ICU, couldn't breathe, but spent the night there and listened to her struggling for breath all night long. I didn't know if it was going to be life or death. 
I know one thing. I had to surrender to God. Lord, your will, not mine. You know what my will is. And when I prayed, though, I prayed, now, God, it's more needful for her to stay. She's got three wonderful daughters, three great sons-in-law, 14 grandchildren. Lord, she needs to stay. She has such an impact. And she's got a husband who couldn't live without it. But in God's good grace, good plan, he allowed her to live. And I will tell you, since then, the fruit in her life in a multitude of ways has multiplied. Paul was committed to Christ in life and death. He was ready to go, but willing to stay for the good of God's kingdom and God's people. Either way, Paul, all Paul could see in his vision is Christ. Whether to remain or depart, Christ was the goal. And to magnify him and glorify him was his absolute priority. In staying, he wanted nothing less than to be used of God to challenge and change the hearts of people with the gospel. Paul was committed both to Christ and Christ's bride, the church. This should be our commitment as well. And the fruit that he wanted to see in their lives, well, we've already seen it, and I'll just mention it because I'm about to close here. Verse 9, that they would grow in love. Verse 9 again, to grow in knowledge. Verse 11, to grow in righteousness. Chapter 2, verse 12, to grow in their obedience. Because the Christian life is either one of progress. He says, I want you to progress in the gospel. It's either one of progress or regress. You don't kind of stand still in the Christian life. So he wanted to see as the fruit, the progress of their faith and joy of faith. If you look at the bookends of this section that we're in, there's what we call an inclusio, the bookends for the section. Verse 18, you see Paul's joy. I will rejoice. But now in verses 25 and 26, we also see the joy Paul wants for the Philippians to experience. And this progress of joy and faith was for a singular purpose. End of verse 26, so that... In me, you may have ample cause to glorify, to glory in Christ Jesus. Now, in in closing application, what Paul has been telling us here in this section is to see the advancement of the gospel and the advancement of God's people is his goal in life. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. But in me, verse 26, in me, may you have ample cause to glory in Christ. This is a man who who wants to live for others. He wants to live for Christ. And so I ask, what are you living for? What drives you in life? How do you fill in the blank For me to live is blank. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, 
I know that as I read this passage, if my will is surrendered to Christ, then my spirit will always rejoice regardless of the circumstances. If my heart is ready to serve you and your purposes, then my labor will always be fruitful. And if my focus is firmly fixed on eternity, then my life will always glorify God. Father, I pray that what we have seen here in this text today, this inspired word of God, this word to us today, will strengthen, inspire, and direct each of our hearts that we might glorify you, that we might make you large before the world, that for us to live, people will say, I see Christ in that man, in that woman, in that young man, in that young girl. And may we do it all, that you will be glorified and that we might have the joy that your Spirit gives us in our obedience. And this we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I'll be celebrating the communion this morning, but if you'll turn